Thank you, Michael. A great uh, hero in the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century was a man by the name of John Knox. Uh, the Protestant, by the way, it does have a meaning of protesting the corruption in the church, but it also it means pro-testament. It is pro-scriptures, pro-Old and New Testament. And when we think about Reformation, uh, you think about the church seeking to reform itself back to the scriptures. But anyhow, this John Knox was a visionary uh, of public education. Uh, he encouraged a movement of establishing schools in every town and jurisdiction uh, to make sure that all children, regardless of wealth, and, and normally at that point it was just the elite and the wealthy that actually had access to education, but John Knox instituted a school system in the towns to make sure that all children, poor children, had access to education that they could read, and principally that they had access to read the scriptures. Uh, and so when you think about, uh, if you've learned how to read in public school, think about John Knox. Uh, he also happened to be what's been considered the founder of the Presbyterian Church uh, in Scotland. And, and uh, anyhow, he was a great man, and he had a terminal illness. Uh, and as he uh, was dying in his last days, he asked for a particular passage of Scripture to be read to him every day. Uh, and that particular text of Scripture was John 17, the uh, prayer of Jesus. And he died on uh, November 24th, 1572, and it uh, was recorded that the last words that he heard was, uh, before he went into glory, was John 17. Now, what was it that not only comforted but consult and captivated this man uh, in this longest, most intimate uh, intercession of Jesus with his father. Uh, as he prays for himself, as Jesus prays for himself, as he prays for his disciples, and he prays for the world. What was it that captivated him? Well, we've been considering the prayer of Jesus this past month to encourage our own prayer lives, and Jesus essentially made four prayer requests in this prayer, that God the Father would be glorified, through Christ's crucifixion and his death as he goes into glory, that his disciples would be protected uh, from the evil one, uh, that they would be sanctified and consecrated for the mission uh, of God through the word of God, as Pastor Stan uh, shared with us last week. And this week, and lastly, Jesus prays for his disciples, and he prays one thing, that they would be one and unified for the mission of God. Now let's consider these final words of Jesus' prayer, starting with verse 20. I do not ask for these only, also, but, but for also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfect, become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory, that they that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. 
I, made, I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. It's hard for people to be united, to stay united. It's hard for people from different perspectives, different personalities, different histories, different races and ethnicities and classes and political convictions to remain in community. And it's hard also for believers for the same reasons. Uh, Spencer Perkins and Chris Rice wrote this book, More Than Equals, that I think many maybe in our fellowship have read, More Than Equals Racial Healing for the Sake of the Gospel. Uh, These two became unlikely yoke fellows or colleagues or partners uh, for more than a decade in an intentional Christian community called Antioch Community in in Mississippi. But Chris Rice, uh, the white dude, wrote in in an article, Born Again Again, he said that after 17 years of intense church-based racial justice and reconciliation ministry in Mississippi, my gospel had largely become a matter of trying harder and doing more, and things I held dear began to fall apart. And he said that they were traveling the nation preaching about the unity and uh, their reconciling fellowship, uh, but at the same time that they they could hardly sit together at the same dinner table. Uh, They were riddled with unresolved relational difficulties. Joy and excitement had given way to discouragement and hopelessness. Chris took the plunge and decided to painfully write about what he felt in this unbearable contradiction. He said to Spencer, he said that Spencer, after reading it, reacted, throwing down what he called the race card. Why do only white folks make ultimatums like this, he said. Chris said that his anger escalated as he felt Spencer accusing him of being a deserter of the cause. And so they decided to get counsel from an older couple, a trusted older couple by the name of John and Judy Alexander, who came and sat and listened to them and, and asked them some diagnostic questions. Which does the Bible speak more of, loving God or loving your neighbor? And Chris thought it was a trick question. How can you separate the two? Jesus didn't. And after watching Christian's Spencer squirmed. John laughed. He says, I'm, very, I'm a very meticulous person. He des- described how he once actually counted all of the Bible verses about loving God and about loving our neighbor, uh, which were innumerable. And of course, it also included loving our neighbor and loving the poor, which they were very committed to. But John said he made a discovery. Far more than verses about loving God or loving the poor were stories about God's love for us. He said the most important truth in the world is not our loving or of our trying harder to love God or others, but God's acts of love for us. If you don't get God's love into your bones, you will become very dangerous people, he warned, especially activists like you. The most important person in this community is not Spencer or Chris or any of you or the people in the neighborhood. The most important person in any community is Jesus. Your life has to keep Jesus at the center. And he called that an interruption of grace. (laughs) 
And it was a new beginning of healing in their relationship. They decided to replace the culture of demands with a culture of grace. They said it felt like going back to kindergarten, learning a new language and new practices. He, he said, for us, telling the truth had come to mean telling the church and each other how they needed to change. But now we saw that the greatest truth was telling and showing each other how much God loves us. You see, merely knowing the truth of God's word and the call to be one people will not be sufficient to keep you united, even as critical as that is. Nor will being caught up together in a great mission of the gospel and word and deeds and justice and mercy sustain your unity. You need to get God's love deep into your bones. And here Jesus' prayer, he not only prays for our unity, revealing the purpose of our unity and the personality of our un unity, but he shows us the power for our unity. And so Jesus, he prays for the purpose of our unity. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may, be, may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And he repeats it in verse 23. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me. If you ever wonder where you are in the scriptures, where you're thought about in the scriptures, here's your verse, believer. Jesus is praying to the Father that there would be those who would believe in him through the message of the apostles. He had you in his heart. He had you and me in his heart. And that's a great, it should be a great encouragement. Yet also, Jesus reveals that the chief characteristic, the chief manifest, manifestation and witness that the, of the church's belief in Jesus and of Jesus' reality and coming and his presence and his salvation to the world was nothing else than the unity. Jesus assumes that the disciples were proclaiming the message and the truths of God's word. Uh, those who will believe in me through their word, he says. But Jesus did not say that the verbal message would show or convince the world that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus assumes that words of truth would be spoken and backed up by gospel deeds of mercy and justice, that the whole gospel would be presented. And Jesus, as Jesus calls his disciples in Matthew 5, let your light shine before men that they might see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. But here in this prayer, Jesus does not bring up these kinds of good deeds of the gospel as important, as vital, and authenticating as they are to our gospel witness. The key characteristic, the witness of the church that outwardly reveals Christ's presence and reality is the believers being united, a united people. You know, in the Gospel of John, and we talked about this early, early this year, in the Gospel of John, the first half of the book has been considered the book of glory. And there are seven signs that reveal, these miraculous signs that Jesus reveals that reveal his glory. And it's, first it starts with the, the wedding at Cana and the transforming of the water into wine. But when Jesus speaks in this prayer, he's actually speaking of a continuing sign 
of his presence as the resurrected Lord who sends his Holy Spirit and that continuing sign in the church that will reveal that he came is none, nothing else but the unity of the body of Christ. Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us that the world may believe that you have sent me. John Stott said this, I wonder if anything is more urgent today for the honor of Christ and for the spread of the gospel than that the church should be seen as what it is, what, what by God's purpose in Christ's achievement it already is, a single new humanity, a model of human community, a family of reconciled brothers and sisters who love their father and love each other, the evident dwelling place of God by his spirit. Only then will the world believe in Christ as peacemaker. Only then will God receive the glory due his name. And I think John Stott is right in this encouragement. And so Jesus prays for this miracle, this wonder-working miracle of unity to be displayed in his disciples. Carneal Means is a, uh, a member, a long-term member of Faith Christian Fellowship, a deacon in our church. And what originally captivated Carneal to Faith Christian Fellowship was when he went to a community chill and here in Mullins Park in the center of Penn Lucy on the 4,000 block of Old York. And he saw this motley group of uh, folks gathered together, blacks and whites and other races, throwing a party in the heart of the community. And uh, it was normally a place where there were often a lot of drug activities. And, and we called this a community chill. We just threw a big party, had hot dogs, hamburgers, face painting, the choir sang. And uh, we just had a great celebration. And Carneal was standing on the edge, and he was watching this crazy group do this thing. And he was somewhat amazed by it. Well, that was on a Saturday. The next day was Sunday, and he showed up at worship. And that afternoon, we announced in the worship that we were doing a four-hour training session for community group leaders. And here, Carneal shows up first-time visitor at Faith on worship, and he shows up and he spends the entire time in this seminar for leaders, and then that Tuesday, he entered into a community group, and a few years later, he became a community group leader, uh, then he became a deacon, a head usher. Uh, what Carneal witnessed on that park in Penn Lucy he became part of. And uh, I had the uh, privilege of, of seeing just him in action. Of course, if you know Carneal, it's a great gift to have him in our body. Um, just, you, just, you just praise God for this brother. Uh, he displays Christ's grace in so many ways. But uh, this a few months ago, after a community group meeting that I was in, I got a, I got a text message uh, from, from Steve Sharkey that uh, his daughter Joanna, and many of you know this, had uh, really was battling with some very uh, despairing uh, thoughts and feelings and depression and feeling overwhelmed that she attempted suicide. And, uh, and so I was asked to meet, and so I went to GBMC to, to, to be with them, and as I walked into the ER room, there was Caroline and Steve with, with Joey, and the other person in that room was Carneal. 
And Carnea was there consoling and comforting and giving words and hugs and, and love. And I, I just tell you that it was just a beautiful picture of the kingdom. And I was, you know, so grateful. And I walked out and I said, well, this is an odd picture. You know, probably for a lot of folks, they would probably wonder, what is this middle-aged African-American man doing here with this family? And in this very vulnerable, weak, uh, hard moment, and, we, of course, we thought nothing of it because this is just normal. Uh, but I could imagine that it wasn't normal for a lot of other people. And then I thought, well, you know, you think a little bit further back, and you realize that, that Carneal graduated from the University of Baltimore Streets. Uh, he was a former addict. Uh, he was a former drug dealer. And here's Steve Sharkey, you know, this prominent lawyer. And it's like all this this contrast of, of histories and characters and race and class, but it was family. And all that you saw was the love of God manifested in family. All you saw was the presence of Jesus in family. You saw that, that Carneal became a spiritual father to Joey. And by the way, he, you know, that was the covenant group that he became part of and, and really saw Joey raised and really has been a spiritual dad to her as well as to many of our other daughters in this community. Please keep Joey in your prayer. She's in Austin, Texas, and uh, she's getting a fresh start, and, and there's some good things that are happening in her life. But this is the picture of unity, I believe, that one expression that Jesus delights in, and it shows the world that he is real. But Jesus prays the personality for our unity. He says that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. You know, often this is a proof text that's used for the ecumenical movement or just gathering people to, together regardless of, of exactly what their convictions or beliefs are because unity often gets this sense that we're just called to be together regardless of what you believe. But in verse 20, it says, I do not ask for these only, but also those who will believe in me through their word. And so Jesus is connecting with the word of the original apostles. Jesus said, I'm not praying for these alone, but also for those who would believe me through their word, the apostles and all subsequent believers, the universal church of the ages flowing from the apostles, the historic continuity, the unity of the church grounded on the foundation of the, the apostles. It's not just simply unity of love at the expense of truth. It is not unity as, as some kind of shallow gathering, uh, superficial unity. Uh, it is unity grounded on the adherence of the revelation of the Father mediated through the apostles, through the Son, the revelation that was accepted and passed on. Uh, Carson said this, It is not achieved by hunting enthusiastically for the lowest common theological denominator, but by common adherence to the apostolic gospel, by love that is joyfully self-sacrificing, by undaunted commitment to the shared goals of the mission with which Jesus' followers have been charged, by self-conscious dependence on God himself for, the life, for life and fruitfulness. And so it is a unity based on truth, but it also is a unity that is grounded and based and flows out of the relationship of the divine persons of God, the Trinity, the triune God. Uh, and he, the, he, he talks about how 
the unity of the Father and the Son is to be the expression and the foundation for the unity of the, of, of the disciples. And so, what does that unity look like? Well, a guy named John Salmon said, each person in the Trinity loves, honors, glorifies the others and receives love and honor back from the others because he's worthy. And so what we see is this great love relationship within the Godhead, the Father and the Son, the Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Father, the Holy Spirit loving the Father and the Son. And we see these distinct persons, but yet they are all together united in one mission, one purpose, one love and action. And so believers in our distinctiveness, in our different personalities, our different histories, are to reflect this common union and uh, joyful union that we have. And so we see how uh, this union is established through, uh, through the, and grounded in the triune God. You know, Jesus said in John 8, he says, I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father taught me. He says, by myself I can do nothing, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. And John 6, 38 says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus is constantly one, fulfilling the mission that his Father gave him. But it was his desire as well. So we see the Father initiating. We see the Son complying. We see the Spirit executing. And while this unity is grounded in truth, and while it is also an ex a flowing out of this love relationship between the Father and the Son, we see this distinctiveness as the Gospels unfold, that it is a unity that crosses all kinds of barriers of race and class, of Greek and Jew, and male or free, uh, and, uh, yeah, slaver free, barbarian and Scythian, the circumcised and the uncircumcised. And, and God is doing this work of uniting diverse people from really far distances. And he did this really with the disciples. If you start thinking about the disciples own personalities. He united a militant zealot with a tax collector, a Roman, you know, a Roman uh, compromiser. Uh, he, 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 he united blue-collar fishermen, and we see that he brings together. But finally, Jesus prays the power for our unity. He prays the power for our unity. He says in verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I've given them that they may be one even as we are one. And then he says in verse 26, I have made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And he shows us that, uh, another reason for our encouragement towards unity is the glory that Jesus was given, he gives to his disciples. Now there's a lot of questions exactly what that means. But here's some of the scriptures where it talks about the glory of Christ given to the disciples. Uh, and First Peter says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. First Peter 5.10, and, and the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Uh, we find that it's a glory that will endure. Uh, if you've been insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. What is glory? Glory is really the manifestation of the reality of who God is. Jesus 
revealed God's glory, but it is a statement of honor. It's a statement of dignity. It's a statement of praise and honor. The scriptures tell us in Ephesians that we've been seated with Christ in heaven, that we are in a position of the highest that we could ever imagine. What does that mean? I don't have to seek my own glory here. I don't have to seek respect and honor in this world because I possess an ultimate glory. If that gets into your heart and your bones, then you're free from having to push yourself into places and to demand things because you know of your true value in the eyes of God. And so D.A. Carson again says that you have loved them even as you have loved me. That thought is breathtakingly extravagant that Christians themselves have been caught up into the love of the Father for the Son, secure and content and fulfilled because loved by the Almighty himself with the very same love of that he reserves for his son, it is hard to imagine a more compelling evangelistic appeal. And I'd like to kind of finish just talking and trying to unpack that a little bit. You know, Jesus expresses this longing that he has for his disciples to be with him, that they might see his glory. He has this expression of this longing. And, uh, but the ultimate hope, for Jesus' followers, the ultimate hope for you and me turns on the love of the Father for the Son and the love of the Son for the Father. Believers in this share in the delight of being loved by the Father also share in the glory of the Son. I have never done this before in the entire time that I've preached, but I'm going to give you a Greek phrase. Okay, here it is. This is Kai Agapisas Altus Kathos Emi Agapisas, which means, and he loved them even, Kathos, as you loved me. You have loved them, he loved the disciples, he loves you just as, with the same proportion, even as, exactly as you have loved me, with that same affection and delight. This is, for me, the most astounding verse in all of the scriptures. That somehow, in God's being and heart, he would desire and reveal to express and embrace wicked, fallen rebels who were cold stone dead in their sins with every inclination of their hearts being only evil all the time, sin infected down to the bone, but that he in his magnificent grace would decide to redeem and to purchase and reconcile and remove the offense and to restore the relationship to family and to friendship in order not only to adopt beloved children, but would marry us and to make us a pure bride to be the delight and the apple of his eye and to, for us to enjoy eternal delights in his presence with ever-increasing joy. But as astounding as that redemption and reconciliation and restoration is, it is even more astounding to me that the Father would reserve and treasure and adore and delight passionately with the same love in the same proportion, with the exact same love that he has for his divine, 
perfect, sinless son. How is that so? I cannot fathom this expression. When Paul prays in Ephesians, which we heard in our scriptures, that he prays that the Ephesians would know the depths, the heights, the breadth, and the length of God's love, he is praying that they would dwell and abide and celebrate in this incomprehensible grace. And why does Paul pray this? It is the driver for their spiritual growth in the character of God, their radical gospel deeds of witness in the world, and their miraculous radical un unity of witness before the world. When you and I can get this kind of experiential high pumping through our bloodstream, nothing else matters except the desire to be sold out for Jesus. No sacrifice is too great. Because it is all temporary, but the glory of God is e and the love of God is eternal. It is what drives us to the hard work of unity building in the face of such astounding love. No labor seems too difficult. Yet without sensing and dwelling in and living in and abiding in this love, unity building becomes a drudgery and an unbearable burden. People's sin and ignorance and selfishness, along with their own blindness and unwillingness, to become humble, make the labor of unity building a drudgery. And so Paul prays that they would know the depths and the heights and the breadth and how magnificent is this, this love of God for us. I, uh, I, I did a, a funeral a couple weeks ago of uh, a professor from University of Towson uh, who had been professed there for 45 years, and his best friend that he knew from middle school uh, spoke and gave a testimony about his character. And one of the things that he said, he said, both Mike and I could never please our dads. There's nothing that we could do that seemed to, to work. And they, he just shared some of their hard relationship with their father, their fathers. But he said this, he says, but well, we had each other. And we would call each other. And we would feel discouraged and we felt broken we encouraged each other. We showed each other the love that our dads should have been giving us, but it was such a precious thing. And do you realize that in the community of God's people, this is where people should experience the love of God. They should experience the love of the Father and the love of the family of God and to be encouraged in that. There's such a father hunger in our world. This past week, uh, Ajith Fernando, uh, Youth for Christ leader with uh, Youth for Christ in Sri Lanka, uh, was reflecting on his 40 years of, uh, of ministry. And he, and he said this, he says, I am happy despite my own unworthiness. When I came to Christ, I came as a sinner. Alas, even after coming to Christ, I have failed God very often. Yet the statement, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. He said, there is something amazingly freeing about realizing that because all that we get is an unmerited gift of God's grace. We don't deserve anything. It frees us from being disillusioned and angry over the way people treat us. Many people today live with anger about not being accepted by others or not being given an assignment or promotion they feel they were qualified for or not being recognized for the work they have done. What bondage how much more freeing it is to be able to bask in the identity and significance that comes from the acceptance and love of God. 
then we can be happy despite all the rejection we face on earth. Then we are freed to give ourselves with all our heart and soul and strength to the work that God has assigned us to. Do you capture the freedom? He has, he has found himself basking in this love that just pours into his life and it, and it, and it covers over all the wounds that we have. Uh, to end, Chris Rice uh, says this as uh, he was intruded, uh, interrupted by grace. He says, being able to extend grace and forgives, uh, forgive sets us free. We no longer need to spend emotional, precious emotional energy thinking about the day oppressors will get what they deserve. He says, what I am learning about grace lifts a weight from my shoulder, which is nothing short of invigorating. When we can forgive and accept those who refuse to listen to God's commands to do justice, it allows them to hear God's judgment without feeling a personal judgment from us. In the end, this gives our message more integrity. The ability to give grace while preaching justice makes our witness even more effective. Can you capture that? How we communicate the, the challenges and the call of God do we do it out of a spirit of legalism and pharisaical rules, or do we do, we do it with winsome, encouraging grace? And so he, he, says, he says this, is, I have sought to create more room for the grace of God and with others. I used to live as the psalmist had written, be busy and know that I am God. That's not what the psalmist says. It says, be still. He says, I hope... I have become as radical about receiving the gift of Sabbath as I am about pursuing justice. I remain deeply committed by being shaped by Jesus' story of the Samaritan uh, who crosses social and racial divides to offer hospitality to the other. Yet, I have also sought to be like Mary of Bethany in the story that immediately follows. She wasted time listening at Jesus' feet while her sister Martha slaved away doing deeds in a world of ever-pressing needs. I hope I increasingly buy the difference between trying to be a minister and trying to be a Messiah. <laughs> and so he talks about what does it mean to pursue racial reconciliation in and through grace. And here's of three applications for us. First, it means to recognize that reconciliation is God's gift. It does not begin with our activism. And he talks about how we live in a world where that's the, that tends to be our drive uh, the church should do this and be that uh, to change. Everyone should share in power. Now let's go out and make it happen. He says, but God invites us on the journey of reconciliation, the same journey that the early church was on, a journey that includes interruptions, reconciliation among social divides, dismantling discrimination. And he talks about that. But secondly, he says this, it means working for justice with the spirit of mercy. He says, grace calls us first to slow down and start with God's gift of lament, to see and name and to feel the brokenness. Only when we experience lament, feel helpless, and let go of control <clears throat> can we open up our need for God and God's gifts. The only thing that can rescue us from our alienation, getting God's love into our bones, gives us a holy boldness and mercy to take the time to see what's going on in our communities and institutions. And I, you know, this, this past week, with uh, somewhat of a resolution of the Freddie Gray, I think that we all in Baltimore feel the, the, the conflicts and, 
and the and the loss of, uh, of resolutions that that we look for and we want to see uh, justice in our society and we we wonder where is justice ever going to happen we know this that ultimately God is going to bring justice but God is also a God of mercy and God is a God who will bring all things to restoration. But thirdly, conversion by grace takes time and does not leave us standing complacently where we are. Grace not only takes time, but gives us time to pursue reconciliation, not with desperation, but with, by embracing long-term practices and disciplines that in the light of God's love becomes graces through which we and our institutions can be converted. And so these are encouragements for us as a community uh, to think about how do we move in our fellowship with a foundation and a driver of the love of God. You need to get the love of God into your bones. Uh, you need to think first about how can you speak grace and hope and encouragement in the people's lives before you speak correction and criticism. Um, so how do we do that? Well, we just pray. We just keep celebrating. You know, our church, we say, you see it every week in the bulletin, celebrating the reconciliation. And there's a reason for that. The only way we can apply the reconciling work of Jesus Christ is by first living in the celebration of it as an accomplished work. And so when we come together on Sundays in our worship and we celebrate the work of Christ, that is so foundational for any power that we have to live as a true community of love. So let's continue to worship and to celebrate and to take time to rest and to encourage each other in that love. Let's pray. Lord God, we are grateful that you give us this prayer, which we, uh, we've just really started to touch into some of the depths. But Lord, I pray that you would uh, allow your spirit through your word uh, to take your your prayers, uh, and sink them deep into our bones, God, that we would uh, dwell in the love and the depths and the, and the height and the breadth of your love, God, that we would be filled with your fullness, and that that would drive us uh, to the unity that would allow the world to see that you are truly uh, a loving Father uh, that has sent his only Son to save a world of sinners. And so, Lord, use us in this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.
And now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that you could ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus both now and forevermore. Amen. Amen.